time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, listeners, old and new, to episode 53 of the Feelin' Film podcast. Today, we are discussing a film that we sort of threw on the schedule recently due to its really capturing my attention when I was rewatching it last month. That film is Frailty, directed by and starring the late, great Bill Paxton. Yes, Aaron, that's right. You talked me into a horror movie. Shocker. <laughs> Luckily for me, there wasn't a ton of gore in this one, so I made it through okay, at least somewhat unscathed. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of axes now uh, for some reason. Uh, <laughs> but I'm really excited, too, because this film is thematically rich and full of great material for a conversation like ours. But uh, before we get into that, why don't we kind of... Uh, touch base a little bit, catch up, and find out what we've been up to with regards to entertainment this last week. Well, Patrick, that sounds amazing. I'm definitely ready for that. In fact, I have quite a bit to say, so I don't know, maybe now's a good time just to remind everyone listening that we do put timestamps in the show notes. Uh, So if you guys ever want to skip ahead to the main review, you can do that. You will be missing some pretty interesting stuff. You might hurt our feelings. Uh, You never know when we're going to bring up a hidden gem of a recommendation. So keep that in mind if you are skipping ahead, but feel free to do that if you're here just for the main review. Very good, man. Well, if you don't mind, I would like to go ahead, since you've got some stuff, I'm going to go ahead and get mine out of the way. All right. Sounds good to me. So this actually came kind of out of nowhere. We had dropped an announcement this week that uh, Rogue One released on home video, as we continue to call it, even though it's, you know, every time I think of home video, I think of, you know, VHS, but whatever. And one of our guy, one of our listeners, Steve Hamilton, put a little note on our Facebook page and said, hey, uh, love Rogue One. It uh, got me thinking about our, our main character, uh, the, um, you know, Felicity Jones. And I started doing some some uh, searching on Netflix to find out some other Felicity Jones. And I ran across this little, I don't know if he was familiar with it, but I I think he was, but it's an old, not so old movie called Chalet Girl. It's a romantic comedy, a British rom-com from 2011. And I, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for romantic comedies and in some, some facets. And was it in high school? (laughs) Those could be any time. Romantic comedies, yes, they're probably more apropos in high school settings, but you know, I like a good romantic comedy anywhere. And um, what really kind of uh, grabbed my attention was he mentioned that it starred uh, uh, Sophia Bush from uh, who One I Tree from, Hill from One Tree Hill fame. Yeah, I I'm, have no problem admitting that I became a a late to the party fan of the show One One Tree Hill. My wife and I watched it together. It was very much a uh, a nice uh, guilty pleasure for us. So I wanted to go ahead and check this out. And Aaron, I got to tell you, this thing was hilarious. It was really good. Uh, you know, there were plot holes here and there, and it's your typical, you know, three to three and a half star romantic comedy. But you've got this British humor mixed in with your great formulaic, um, you know, girl meets boy, girl falls in love with boy, girl breaks up boy and his fiance, you know, that kind of- Oh, that's definitely uplifting. <laughs> but it's all set in the backdrop of um, of Felicity Jones' character, Kim, who 
made kind of a small name for herself as a skateboarder and ended up kind of, quote, hanging up her skateboard after a car accident that killed her mom. And she goes, you know, this is, I don't know how many years later, maybe three years later, four years later, the the movie begins with her in a burger joint trying to, you know, find meaning in her life. And she ends up getting this really cool gig as a chalet girl, as basically a, uh, some kind of, I don't know, like a maid or a helper in a ritzy, um, just uh, ski resort for this family that brings in clients and stuff like that. And so she discovers that she has a knack for snowboarding. Go, go figure. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of what drives the movie. But it's, again, the, the writing in it is really funny. It's incredibly entertaining in terms of just, how the the story moves along um some of it you know you could kind of throw off the ability for it to be well yeah would she really be able to learn this in that amount of time whatever it's just one of those movies that it's a very fun movie very good feel good movie very entertaining to say the least and uh you know bill nighy is completely bill nighy in in this movie like he is in movies like love actually Mm -hmm. and um Felicity Jones is just charming. She's a very, you know, it's a very young Felicity Jones. And so she plays this really great kind of high school, college type uh, character. But it's really, really good. It's one that I, I want to uh, I want to watch with my wife. I think she would enjoy it. And as you guys know, that's always a plus when I can share something that I think, think my wife would enjoy with me. So I'm going to hopefully get a rewatch with her at some point. So Chalet Girl, 2011. And thank you, Steve Hamilton, for the recommendation. I really enjoyed it. Very interesting. I, you know, I've never never heard of it. Of course, um, it, it's it's one of those obscure ones. And um, I, you had me at Felicity Jones and Sophia Bush for for sure because right. both of them are are definitely ones that I like to watch. And so I'm I'm intrigued. I'm I'm intrigued. That's good stuff, man. That's good stuff. I'm gonna give it my my thumb and a half up there. <laughs> <laughs> my nub. I've got a thumb and a nub for that for that one. So it's good. That'd be a pretty funny ranking system. (laughs) Wouldn't it, though? (laughs) One and a half nubs up. One and a half nubs up. All right, man, why don't you you go dive into what you've been up to, and I'm going to go make a Hot Pocket. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to take that long. Well, maybe. Um, Well, this last week, I have kind of somewhat by accident and somewhat intentionally thrown myself full bore into the world of anime. And so I wanted to talk just a little bit about the various different types of anime that I've, I've been engaged, engaged and engaging with. Now, I've, I've watched anime for several years now, on and off here and there. I've watched some series. I've, you know, it's been growing on me, particularly kind of started, I think, with uh, Miyazaki films, uh, Studio Ghibli uh, movies that were just incredible. And I graduated to watching some anime series that I enjoyed. And I mean, I've watched anime in the past as well growing up. I just never, I've never been like a, a consistent uh, viewer. I've, I've always been very picky. You know, I want to watch one show and that's, that's all I'm going to do. But this past week, uh, a couple different random things happened. One, uh, a new service called Verve, that's V-R-V, came out. It's like an app. And essentially, they had a, a very cheap subscription that would encompass um, Funimation and Crunchyroll, which are two of the, the premier anime websites out there, or anime uh, channels. 
for getting your content. One is primarily uh, dubbed versions of shows, which is, you know, English. And the other one is um, sub. So it's traditional, like as it was made with subtitles. Now, a buddy of mine and some other friends who are very much into anime, and I talk about it with them, you know, occasionally throughout each week, he and I decided, let's, you know, split a subscription to this and check it out. Well, we did that, and all of a sudden, you know, something about having it at my fingertips. Now, I've watched anime in the past, and I've, you know, used web browsers through my PlayStation 4, and it's kind of a pain to get to it. And so, all of a sudden, I just have tons and tons available of the best stuff, whatever I want, and it's it's a click and a button here and there. Um, So... He had been raving about this particular series that he'd been watching or, or just recently finished. And it's, I mean, I'm going to name it and you're going to laugh because it's like, it is a pretty funny title. But it's, it's just called uh, Puella Magi Madica Magica. And wow. it's like, well, that I just know. rolls right off your tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right? Really catchy. I mean, it's better than if I went through the, the Japanese name for the show. But that's, <laughs> that's the English name. Yeah. Um, but what this show is. Uh, is it's a 12 episode series and it is about a magical girl, which I'm not even going to try to start going into the explanation of this, but the, the magical girl is a concept or a, a trope, almost a genre of, a, of, an, of itself of anime. And there are many different Japanese shows that have dealt with this concept of this magical girl. And uh, you know, it's set in high school, etc. But the thing that it it does very uniquely is it, it ends up being a deconstruction of this trope or this genre of magical girls. So I guess one of the most famous animes is called Sailor Moon, and it is a magical girl show. Now, I've never watched it, so I think I missed some stuff when I was watching this show because I didn't know what it was deconstructing. Imagine you're watching Cabin in the Woods and you've never seen a horror movie in your life. You wouldn't, That's hilarious. You wouldn't get... <laughs> The references, right? You wouldn't understand that, oh, the jock is not supposed to be smart. And, oh, the virgin is, you know, not supposed to actually not be a virgin. Things like that. You you wouldn't understand the the deconstruction. And so I missed some things along the way, I feel like. But I got really sucked in. And I ended up blowing through this series, I want to say, in two days. Now, there's a couple of awesome things I've found. These 12-episode series are phenomenal. We're talking 12 bite-sized, like 24-minute episodes. That is the kind of content I can watch. I can get into it. You know, I can power through binge watch in a day or two, and I've finished a series. I've gotten character development, the the things that I love the most. And I really enjoyed that. And I guess anime is starting to trend in this direction. Um, In the past, there have been many anime series that have gone like hundreds of episodes. Um, and so those are very intimidating. I can't get into those, you know, because I'm not going to commit that, that, that kind of time to it. Um, but anyway, this, this was a very good show. So, uh, anybody out there that's looking for an anime recommendation at the time, Puella Magi Madoka Magica, definitely worth your time. Um, I started another one after that called Tokyo Ghoul. And this is just, I want to mention this because of the, the difference, like the magical girl idea is a show about, middle school girls who are, you know, understanding this awakening of this magical power within them. And then basically they become witch hunters. That's the very, very brief, uh, you know, explanation of it. 
and it takes place, you know, mostly in high schools. Tokyo Ghoul is about a, you know, near dystopian type, not dystopian, but near apocalyptic almost future where these ghouls have been discovered. These, these zombies that walk among us, um, that look and kind of act like humans, but have to feed on human flesh or they can't live and how society has reacted and started to try to implement them living as part of society. It's conceptually it's, it's completely intriguing. Um, super emotional, absolutely loving it. I'm, I'm working my way through it right now. Heck I might finish it tonight after recording. Who knows? I've got like four episodes left. Um, and then on top of that, one of the best shows I've ever seen of any kind of cartoon or anime is called Attack on Titan. Have you heard of that one? Have you ever heard that mentioned? I have not heard that one. No. Okay. Well, Attack on Titan is literally the most depressing thing I've ever watched in my life. <laughs> is it more depressing than Manchester by the Sea? Yeah, actually. <laughs> it is It is a an episodic Manchester by the Sea. Every okay. single episode everything got worse. So it's a show where there there's almost no hope in it. And they, they give you just nuggets, just enough to like drag you along. And, and they, they, they develop the characters so well that you begin to care for them and love them deeply. And then they immediately like, well, it's a game of Thrones esque. I mean, they're, they're dying and, and it's tragic and it's awful. Um, but it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, just the, the way the storytelling is, goes so far beyond the animation you know for the reasons that i watch the genre it's i love the storytelling and so that one season two just started up what were you gonna say i was just gonna say well after that you should watch chalet girl to give yourself a nice pick me up oh that'd be a nice little way to (laughs) right to weave weave that back in (laughs) chalet girl (laughs) so um yeah so anyway season two just started up with that people have been waiting on that uh for a long time and um uh, just being able to stay up on it and watch it, you know, 24 episode, 24 minute episode once each week is, is something I can easily do. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm even going to see a new movie called your name. Have you heard about that? I know we talked about it in the Facebook group a little bit. I have not. No. So there's a, a film called your name that came out last year. That's the English title again. Um, and it is, it's become the highest grossing anime in history, box wide, box office wise, um, it broke Spirited Away's record of really of box office. Yeah, this is a completely beloved film in Japan, and it's finally getting its Western release. People were really up in arms. They felt like it was uh, absolutely an Oscar contender and didn't even get nominated. They were very upset about that, but it's finally here. It's by a director named Makoto Shinkai. So I think that's a name that will eventually probably be hearing in the same sentences as Miyazaki uh, because he is starting to put together a heck of a filmography and I'm really excited to see this one. I'm taking the kids tomorrow night to, to see it in the theater. And lastly, because I'm not quite done, it's crazy how everything tied together this last week because a video game that I have been waiting for for a very long time finally came out. Now, Patrick, have you ever heard of a video game series called Persona? I mean, everything's tied together because no, I haven't heard of that either. So what you're telling me is you have, uh, you are the person that has no anime history or understanding at all. Basically, I've got, I've got past anime history from when I was in high school. Our, our friend Garen reminded me that he and I watched a little anime when I was in high school. But until Miyazaki came along, I have not been connected to it 
at least not to the extent that you have in this last week. <laughs> it, it's interesting. I may have to try and, and get you to, to consume something kind of smallish, one of these 12 episode series or something, just to see how you like it. Because yeah, I, I have a feeling that you really might enjoy it. If you, you know, the right stuff. Now there's, there is a there's wide swath. For the right stuff. There's an anime no. version of the right stuff. I would watch that. <laughs> I would watch that too. John Glenn as uh, a Japanese guy. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Oh, uh, but yeah, but like anything, I mean, you know, you've got your Adult Swim like anime too. That's you know bordering on so much fan service that it's just unwatchable. But for sure. Um, well, anyway, but this game series called Persona. Um, Persona Five is the newest entry in the series. Um, it was supposed to come out on Valentine's Day. Got a little bit delayed. And Persona 4 is probably my favorite JRPG, Japanese role-playing game, um, in, in history. I, I absolutely adore it. And so I was stoked for this one because this style of game with a turn-based combat system and incredibly deep narrative to it, you just don't get these anymore. Um, this particular game is actually about 50% fighting and 50% social simulator. You actually spend your time during a day you have like sections of a day you have morning afternoon and evening and you have to choose activities to do during each of those sections and you can't do everything it's impossible to do everything in one playthrough so you are always trying to understand the opportunity cost of the time you're spending if i want to go to soccer practice i can't increase the relationship with my best friend who if i do increase the relationship may serve me better in battle but if I go to soccer practice, maybe I raise a trait that I need to get something else. It's it's very, very awesome, and I absolutely love it. And so I have been plunking many hours into that for the last week as well. And it just – it's kind of cool. I'm, I'm I'm on a high right now. I'm very jazzed. You can probably hear in my voice how excited I am about it. And anybody that knows me at all, even just on social media, you might have picked up on this if you follow me, I have an obsessive personality. And when I get like into something the way that I'm feeling into it right now, I mean, it could take hold for several weeks to months and become a, what I would call a main. So I've done nothing but watch movies for the last four months. I think I'm, I think I'm literally almost at 200 movies for it watched in 2006, 17. And, you know, I think for the next couple of months, I'm going to probably start diversifying a little bit and spreading out that entertainment time and those hours and, watching some more anime and playing some more video games. I've going back to that. It's just been a lot of fun. So that's what I've been up to, man. I'm sorry to, to go on so long, but yeah, I was just excited. Oh, there it is. Hot pockets done. Great. Oh. <laughs> right, that hot pocket is a cold pocket now. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lukewarm pocket at this point. Hot pocket. <laughs> well, now that we wrap that up, why don't we go ahead and, uh, and get into our main review of uh of this uh bill paxton directed uh film frailty how about that buddy oh let's do it i am excited all right as we mentioned all the time in this section there will be spoilers this is a fairly old movie i think from the early 2000s um, um late 90s i think late, maybe maybe okay. it's early to that you know these are this is something we should probably start paying attention to and knowing <laughs> our <laughs> credibility is, our, <laughs> it's gone oh, it's gone okay. we lost it yeah. Okay. But anyway, so we will be spoiling this. And so if you haven't seen this, obviously there is a statute of limitations, uh, but we're going to spoil it regardless of what that is, because this is a spoilery show that we got going on here. So let's, uh, let's, let's go ahead and get into it, dude. 
Yeah. Well, you know, why don't we start by getting your take on it? Because I want to know how you handled the horror aspect of this and what you thought. When I recommended it to you, I already was in love with it. I mean, this is a this is a five-star film to me to kind of just put it out there right away. I adore it, um, and I adore it for different reasons than what I would say I adore La La Land. <laughs> Are you serious? I mean, really? Just, can, just to clarify, I mean, I'm just clarifying that by using this, the word adore, you might, somebody out there is like shaking their head like, that's pretty creepy, Aaron, and we need to call the cops. Well, the choreography um, in this movie was phenomenal. I mean, I thought uh, there was some great, great such a great romance. Um, <laughs> my point being is that as storytelling and as a a film experience i i think it's phenomenal top notch top tier unbelievable to me that this is a the work of a first time director I, I just i can't i can't believe it it's very hard for me to to swallow that so when i recommended it to to you i knew that this was not quite the gory type of horror film that that you are typically not a fan of it's it's more psychological mm-hmm. than that for the most part. And I also knew that because of its themes and its religious uh specific you know points to the story that you were going to you were going to be you know impacted by this one. Mm-hmm. Um I, I don't think that we can as as people of of the Christian faith you're watching a film like this it's you just can't put that aside when you're watching it. So mm-hmm. um I am super intrigued to hear what you thought of it, man. Well, it's you're right in that it's more of a psychological thriller. I would attribute it to something more like uh, the recent Shyamalan entry split in terms of the the type of violence, the type of kind of thriller uh, tone that it sets, less so than like say The Grudge or The Ring or something that's going to have supernatural type stuff. And as I'm you know, as we're as we're growing in this podcast, and and I'm getting getting exposed to certain uh, new films, or at least new to me, like Cabin in the Woods and and this and uh, movies like Life, I'm I'm more apt to say specifically what type of horror I can I'm not comfortable with. This is not one of those. This is one that I could watch again and <laughs> not have a problem with. Um, so that being said, I feel like this is a movie that needs to be watched multiple times in order to really appreciate it. I've only gotten a chance to see it once. I want to see it again. Um, as a, as a first time entry into this, I came out of it at maybe three and a half stars in terms of going, Hmm, not quite what I expected. Didn't know what I expected, but it left me going, okay, I want to go back after discussing it and watch it again. Because I feel like it's a movie that has the ability to add value on a rewatch after a discussion, which I think for me, as a as a as a moviegoer, as a film as a as a, a film lover, I can appreciate that. I can I can really really respect that. Um, it wasn't a bad movie. I thought it was really great. I thought from a technical. I know we don't talk about technical stuff, but I thought the casting was great. I thought. The, the pacing was good. The editing was great. I thought the, the restraint of the, of the visuals was great. Left the, left the, uh, uh, left the, the imagination to, to kind of fill in the gaps. And the story was very intriguing. 
But because I didn't maybe quite catch everything or because there was a lot going on that maybe I missed, um, I think maybe we've talked about this on past episode or on past episodes that if I don't feel like I've caught everything, I feel like I've missed part of the experience. And I think that's what I took away from it. And, but I feel confident that watching it again and, um, you know, optimistic about our conversation tonight that I'll want to go back and have a better appreciation of it. But as a, as someone who has directed before in the small short film world, I can appreciate anybody's first time directing debut I, I can completely appreciate that and respect it no matter how quote good or bad something is because you know just like rock and roll is a risk so is directing a feature <laughs> yeah. film you know so uh so kudos to the late bill paxton i thought he did a, a phenomenal job with his directorial debut not only directing but also acting i mean that's got to be a real challenge yeah we've talked about how that's probably the hardest thing to do is to direct yourself mm-hmm. and to separate director from the actor and, right. and what you're what you're wanting to do versus what you think you should do as a director. I, I just can't even imagine mm-hmm. um, how difficult that is, and to do to do it the very first time you're directing. I just, man, it is. It's pretty cool. Um, I I got to tell you this little story too. When I was dry, when I I watched this film randomly one night, and I had seen it, I think back in when it first came out. So darn near two decades ago now. Uh, and I didn't remember, I mean, I didn't remember anything about it at all. Hardly. I knew it had religious themes and once things started happening, I was like, Oh yeah, kind of vaguely, but I didn't know the twist. So I got to experience that all again, kind of fresh. Well, the next morning I had jumped out on my podcast catcher to consume, to find episodes so I could consume as much talk about this as possible. That's that's when I know I've really connected with a film. Um, when I want to go, I want to go find podcasts <laughs> to to talk about it. And I'm listening to a podcast, one of my favorite ones. Uh, I would recommend them after you're done with our episode. Uh, this science fiction film podcast by LSG Media has a great great episode on frailty. So I'm, I'm listening to that. And I'm driving down the road. I look over and I this van goes past me, and on the back of this <laughs> white van <laughs> is this huge logo for a company and it says Otis <laughs> and I about drove off the side of the road now I have never seen this van before in my life I drive this same commute every single day and I see multiple work vans uh, on the on my commute and they're the same ones all the time, but I've never seen this one before. And it freaked me out, man. It freaked me out. And I don't know if God was trying to start giving me my list. Um, and if so, do you want to know who's on it? (laughs) I don't think I do. I don't think you do. Um, but anyway, it was just, it was a trippy moment, um, to have that happen and, and just kind of tie in because Otis is such a random name. That was the thing I noticed when watching the movie. I was like, why Otis? Like that, you know, that's not a common name. That's, that's a very obscure name. You don't hear it very often. And so for me to see that on a van randomly the next morning, it was, Ooh, man, it was, it was creep, seriously creep factor I, 10 right there. And it's funny because I, I make a joke about it, but I did so intentionally because I wanted to say that's how easy it is to start interpreting signs and to decide that a coincidence or 
something that has absolutely no meaning um, is more important than it is. And you start assigning meaning to that. You start assigning value to that. Um, and I've done this in other aspects of my life. And so it ties into me in a way where we see a character in this film who's doing something similar to that. He's, he's seeing things and he is processing them in a way in which they fit in to the vision he has, the way he wants right. to see things. And so he's, he's putting those puzzle pieces. He's forcing the, the, the square into the round hole. Um, but he sees it as a, as a, as a circle. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was just, uh, it was pretty neat. Well, and, and one of the things that, that kind of threw me, I may have missed this. So please fill me in if I have, but one of the issues I had was why does he believe so willingly? I don't know that I've seen, I saw a lot of history with him being very religious. So he seems to be convinced without any question. So if, is that left to be ambiguous as part of that unreliable narrative that we're, that we're being told? Or is it, did I, did I miss something to kind of tell me, ah, that's why he has the, he's apt to believe in this godly vision. I don't recall anything. Um, I, I leaned on his experience with his wife dying as being a traumatic event in his life that eventually altered his almost like post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Now what we don't know or what I don't remember is how long ago his wife died. I can't remember if she died in childbirth or if she died just when they were, the kids were younger. It would make more sense if she had died, you know, somewhat recently in the last three, four years or something. Right. Right. Uh, versus childbirth. But that that's the trigger that they specifically discuss um, being in the or in the film. They, they specifically discuss that. And I feel like that's a potential trigger. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy the fact that there's not any exposition or explanation, frankly, because I think if you made this movie longer in order to give me backstory to why he believed what he did, it wouldn't necessarily enhance it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, all we need to know is that he has become to this belief and as a religious zealot, um, he, he has no question at all that this is correct. And what's interesting is he definitely struggles with it. You know, there's a moment where he's talking to goodness now it's going to be difficult to get their names right sometimes, but he's talking to, I think Fenton as a kid. Okay. And he's basically telling him, he's saying, you know, God put you on my list, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, at that point you really got to be uh, some sort of psychological illness. I think you have to have Mm -hmm. some sort of delusional brain function that is causing you to believe these things Uh or, I don't know how you could logically force yourself to go through that. Yeah. I think that with, with dad, which I think is kind of a brilliant thing that we don't get his name. Oh, I love that too. That, you know, we have a very limited amount, limited number of names, but you know, I I agree. I think if we'd gotten backstory, if we'd been given reason for him to kind of be susceptible to this religious experience, we would be less inclined to, um, the unreliable narrator aspect would be a little bit more reliable, which may take away from the narrative. But 
um, I think what makes it work is the fact that we're, we're kind of thrown into this. I remember one of my early notes was, man, Paxton's a great dad. Like I love his little interaction with the kids when he's putting them to bed and he says, okay, breath check. And then <laughs> I think it's Adam that gives him a, you know, he lets him smell his breath and he goes, whoa, uh, you know? And so as a dad, that's completely me. I'm like completely like over the top obnoxious with my son at bedtime. Um, even though I shouldn't be because he just gets ramped up later it gets, but that's a different story. But what we do is we get this setup of a guy that genuinely loves his kids that he's not, he's not someone who we would think is susceptible to weird things going on. And so it may be a form of PTSD, but it's something that I think we as an audience may halfway connect with, which I think works for the narrative because we sort of believe hey, he could be experiencing something real. Maybe demons do exist in this world. You know, maybe they don't. Um, and, and so maybe the ambiguity of that gives us as an audience more of a reason to sort of go on this exploration with both him and, and Fenton uh, because of the fact that they, are, they, they evolve into two different people, you know, two different worldviews. One's a religious zealot and one's a this is the real world that we live in and you're crazy and we kind of as an audience experience both of those things at the same time which is really interesting oh yeah because we because we don't know what we want to believe. i mean that's it it's a tension you know chris nolan gives us that in his movies this tension this moral tension and i think in the same way we get a worldview tension because we have these two characters that we can relate to uh, depending on your faith background or even just in dealing with faith in general versus, you know, the quote reality of, of what's actually going on here. So that's, uh, that it's something that I think speaks to the strength of the story. I do too. And it, it also, you know, definitely enhances the heartbreakingness of the story or the tragic nature of the story. Yeah, for when, sure. When you're thinking of, of how, bought in he is to this idea um, at the risk of the life that he's, he's changing by pulling his children into it um, because he does seem like such a good dad and like such a good father. Like he's putting them first and he's, you know, taking care of them. And um, you know, I, the fact that Adam wholeheartedly believes him, you know, there's, there's a slight age difference in the two boys and that stuck out to me, you know, Adam is at that age where he's still going to believe everything his dad tells him. I think he's like seven or eight in this movie. And Fenton is um, 10, 11, 12, something, something like that. Um, and having a 12 year old, I can tell you this is the age when they start to question you. And, and it's no longer just, well, dad said it. So it's true. It's pushback and it's, you know, questioning of what I'm my authority and what I'm doing and what I'm saying. So I, I get it. Um, and I think that they portray it fantastically for the, the way that the family dynamic is. Oh, absolutely, man. I think there's one scene in particular where after he, it's after he has that initial vision and he wakes his children up and he says, I need to tell you guys something. And he invites them into that. And that's what's significant is he's not just going off a rail and saying, I have to do this. No, he's saying, guys, we are going to do this. And there's a sense of almost excitement where he feels empowered that he has this vision and he's been told what to do. He's going to be given a list and he's saying, boys, 
we are going to slay some demons. We are going, you know, I don't know what the weapons are we're going to have, but he even refers to them as almost having like superpowers. And, you know, I, <laughs> at some point that's, I'm watching this, and I'm going, that's kind of sadistic because <laughs> you're just, you're kind of being fanatical. Mm-hmm. But when you know the depth of his love for his children, you know that this is a genuine thing that he's doing. He's not manipulating them. He's saying, I want you to be a part of this, which further enhances his despair when Fenton's name shows up on his list. <laughs> yeah. And, I, it and, does. and that's, and, and, it, and, you know, we don't, we don't get the gravity of that until later on. And, um, and there's, there's a real genuineness to that. But, but I think that's where Paxton shines. I think when I look at him as an actor, I see him as as a <laughs> – we talked about him being a great supporting actor in some of our bonus episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what he does here is he's an approachable character. I think he's an approachable actor. And I think that plays into his character here. Like he is a very much a – like I could be neighbors with this guy. Like he would be a guy that I would go bowling with or that I would hang out and have a beer with because he's very much a guy who would befriend most people, you know? And so I think that what's disheartening, at least at first, is knowing that he is, quote, capable of murdering people. But in his mind, he's not doing that. Like he actually thinks he's doing something noble. And and so it's not out of line for his character. You know, if we were being given a task to, to right the wrongs of something, you know, we would think that we were being very noble too, even if the rest of the world or a certain group of people thought we were, what we were doing was morally wrong. But I think that that's what he brings as an actor to the table is the ability to, to, to make us feel at home with him. Like, and make us feel like we can be invited into his living room and have a, just a a great conversation about life. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, I, it's interesting to me from a, a religious themed aspect, you know, and even in tying into cultural relevance today, um, you think about terrorist attacks and um, certain sects of Islam. I, I don't want to loop them all together because that's not that's not any more fair than saying, well, because this guy in this movie murdered people in the name of God, then all Christians are, are loony and crazy and want to kill people. Um, but you know, there comes a point where when you become this committed to something, um, that there is no reasoning with you because your point of view, it it completely, it only makes sense to you. And this film gives us a, a perfect picture of what happens when lies, especially lies that embolden people to do atrocious things to other people in the name of God, um, are kind of masquerading as truth. Um, and that's, and that's what we see. You know, we see people who want to hold the Quran up and say, no, you know, Allah is saying I should, I should kill the infidel. Well, it's not a lot different than what we're seeing right here. Um, right, right. Because in their mind, they are doing God's work. That is, that is what they believe they have, they're doing. And so we see that here as well, um, play out. Now, I'm I'm curious what you thought about. Let's get into the demon killing a little bit here. Um, I, I really wish I had I had some T bone on right now from from our childhood days. We should be <laughs> we should be playing some uh, demon demon killer. 
when we used to make that Skrilla. Oh, we, when we, we definitely don't make that Skrilla anymore. Um, <laughs> yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. Now, okay. when you saw the weapons, what did you think about that and how it all, how he acquired them? Did you have any, any reaction to that at all? The, the pipe and the ax, the pipe and the ax and the gloves and the gloves. Right. You know, again, because of the restraint, not only of the of the murders, but the or the killings, we'll call them the killings, but also the the reveal at the very end, which I thought was brilliant. Up to at that point, I'm going, this guy's flying off the handles because <laughs> this is where my faith sort of steps in. I'm going, nope, I've never in my life <laughs> been told if I'm going to exercise my right to justify slaying a demon, which I've never done. Uh, would I be given a tool like an axe or a pipe or gloves? Uh, so to me, this felt like an excuse to to use weapons to to kill. These are weapons that are normally. I think this is this is what I think is really great is all those weapons, uh, including gloves in some way, shape, or form, were all weapons that have been used in past movies to be uh, to to connect with slaughter or murder or uh bad guys killing you know like horror type stuff and i think we are meant to feel that as an audience like whoa 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 <laughs> these right. are not these are not spiritual slaying weapons these are physical weapons or physical tools that are going to be used to to do something what i love though was how those things got explained. Like, I loved how the gloves were explained. Right. I thought that was amazing. You know, to think what I thought was just a way to hide fingerprints is really just to protect somebody from from seeing the sins of these or the 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 actions of these demons. I'm like, what in the world? And so when he got when he got that revelation, I got that revelation and I was like, wow, that's a great way to use tropes that we're used to you know mm-hmm. and um you know I, I at this point i still don't understand why why those tools were used i mean i understand why the gloves were but why the pipe and the axe you know why not a shotgun or why not a you know why not a i don't know something else like a pickaxe of some kind <laughs> but uh, maybe you can explain that to me well i mean all i have to explain is my personal you know take on it um, but I Which is always good. I like your personal day. <laughs> why? Thank this is you. why we have these conversations. I appreciate that. <laughs> Yay. Um, you know, I take it as the human brain has decided that it is going to now justify murdering random people that it, it, that you choose. And so to, it's very, the, the brain is very complex. Now, if the brain can be, confused and and destroyed enough that someone can not destroyed but altered enough you know psychologically to the point where this guy believes this is the truth then i feel like it could also easily fabricate a reason around how to accomplish that task and justification for the tools necessary so i believe that in the decision making process somewhere with neurons firing away, it came a realization of this is how I'm going to do the murdering. This is where Mm -hmm. I'm going to build. This is where I'm going to bury. This is how I'm going to get away with it. 
and these are the things that I may need. And so those in this warped world view that he's got in his mind, those things now become very important aspects to accomplish his goal, which become relics and and religious icons and and tools. And so I, I just feel like it's a very psychological thing where his brain has taken this plan and then he's pulled pieces of the plan and, and, you know, made them into this thing that they are not. (laughs) Okay. Now he does find the ax kind of surprisingly uh, to the point where you almost have the way that the film is so brilliantly shot. We could keep saying it. I, 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 I can't say it enough. I love the scene when he is driving down the road and you just see the rays shining from the heavens down onto this mm-hmm. barn. And he's like, oh, you know, I bet you that's there. There's something there. I got to go see what's going on. And then, you know, he walks in and it's perfectly hitting the the axe and the gloves. And, you know, I, I, I'm always trying to watch this. And, and this is something you're going to enjoy, I think, when you get a second viewing of it. Because I had a second viewing for the podcast that I, I got to do this on. And I was thinking to myself now okay, what's going on in, how is dad the non-crazy person like actually getting to this point in his life? I'm a random person and I have now pulled over at the side of a, you know, at the road to go inside of some stranger's barn. And how am I going to get to the point where I think I've found a magical demon slaying item? So Mm -hmm. I have to believe that he, went to the barn knowing that there may be tools in the barn that he could find. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of of course he does. And so there it is. Um, I also want to point out, I love that they named the ax Otis. That was (laughs) a decision that they made in order to show that the ax was the same one being passed down. Uh, mm-hmm. amongst the family. And I thought that was a great touch. I mean, cause then you right. know, it's the same ax. You have to have right. a way to distinguish it. Right. Um, I, I love it. I like the, the use of the, um, the, the weapons that he uses, uh, for the kills. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's bloody, it's gross, it's awful, it's horrorish. Um, but it's also somewhat realistic. I think. I think so too. Versus yeah. guns, you know, guns are, are going to draw more attention and he's true. He's trying not to do that. Right. And I think you mentioned something that got me thinking about a psychological term called self-fulfilling prophecy, this idea. And I might be mm. misusing this. I'm, I'm just kind of creating a general idea that if there's an idea in your head that you are doing this, the world around you tends to line itself up with your, uh, with your perspective, you know, and, and we do this. I mean, people do this. They, um, and we can, I mean, I think we can say this candidly as, as people of faith that we tend to, whether it's true or not, we tend to kind of think, okay, today's going to be a good day. I've had my quiet time or whatever, you know, or I've, I've, I've kind of set my mind that something good's going to happen and things start pointing out I'm like, oh yeah, that was good. That was good. Yeah. Look, see how it all lined up. But the same thing happens when we feel like we open up the day and one thing one bad thing happens and all of a sudden we're set up for failure the rest of the day. So every little thing that seems negative tends to sort of reinforce that. And I think for him that kind of leans into what you're talking about, that it's not uncommon for an ax to be in a barn. 
it would be uncommon for a shotgun to be in a barn, possibly, mm-hmm. or a you know a sword or <laughs> right some, exactly something that had even some religious symbolism, like a cross or holy water or something. You wouldn't expect to see that, but he lived in you know a small town. I mean, these guys were not living. Uh, it, it, I mean, am I correct? And is that right? He lived in a small. They lived in a small town. I mean, it looks like it to me. Yeah, I mean, it was very rural. So the tools, the weapons that he was, quote, given were not uncommon. It wasn't like he went out of his way. So from an outsider point of view, it looks like a guy who is hell-bent on killing people, and he's just found the right things to knock them out, (laughs) to hide his fingerprints, and then to, you know, to kill them with, you know, a sharp object that will not leave a lot of... uh, crazy mess you know and so in some ways i feel like in at that point in the movie it was kind of an unreliable narrator or not unreliable, but the self-fulfilling prophecy playing itself out mm-hmm. i also love how the killings aren't shown um so there's a little trivia behind that actually not only did bill paxton seek out the advice of uh, veteran directors like sam raimi and uh, i think it's uh, Cameron is the one that actually made this suggestion to him that I'm going to mention, but he specifically told him, look, don't show this stuff until the end of the movie. Don't let the audience see the, 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 what, what we think dad is seeing uh, and what Adam is seeing, because I would have disliked the movie. Well, that's the wrong phrase. I would not have enjoyed the movie as much. I would not have been nearly as engaged if I was seeing it, when it was happening uh, during the demon killings, because I would have, you know, it would have, it would have not left ambiguity there for us to wonder what he was seeing, if that makes sense. Um, and I also love not showing the deaths. So I don't know if you noticed this, but the only times we actually see murder happen are when a human is killing a quote unquote human. Mm. All the demon killings are off screen. But we we get to visually see when Fenton kills Dad, and when Adam kills Fenton, and when Fenton kills the detective. We see all of those, but we never see a demon die. Wait, did we did we see the one with Adam killing the detective? Oh, did well, we yeah. see that? I, because he was a demon too, right? Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. We don't see it after. We don't see the whole thing. Okay. So you're right. Actually, he falls in the other category. But but yes. So they are but they are separated. So we hmm. see one, we don't see the other. And I love that. I think that's a, a just a really really cool decision to make. Very specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think and and it's subtle too. I mean, you got you got guys that have the ability to say, "Okay." And th- this is where I I can really respect creative teams and the ability to say, "Okay, these are the clues we're going to put down." We need to make sure the story stays stays consistent and stays, you know, well paced. But we're going to put these clues down, and I love the intentionalness of that—the ability to say, "Okay, we're going to do subtle things to separate this belief system that we're actually perpetrating in this film." You know, we want an audience to see both, to be able to see both of the same time, to see a murderer. And a demon slayer. So we're going to do this particular thing. We're not going to show these on camera. We're going to separate them in 
these not so obvious ways. And to me, that's that's smart filmmaking. It's smart storytelling. And um, for someone like Bill Paxton, who, by the way, I can I can completely appreciate anyone who gets feedback from his his uh, constituents. Somebody who says, "What can I do better?" To me, that's the sign of a good creative person, someone who's willing to take constructive criticism, especially from guys that have history, you know, someone who understands that he doesn't have it all together, that he needs, you know, coaching in some cases. And I love that. I mean, because that's who I want to be. I want to be a guy who says, okay, how can I make my writing better? How can I make my directing better? What can I do better here? And, uh, when the product comes out like this, where it's uh, as good of a film as frailty is that speaks not only to Paxson's ability to direct, but also his ability to to get that kind of feedback from people that he believes in and trusts and and admires. Yeah, well, and part of it is you know he's directing his friends. I don't know if you knew this, but um, Powers Booth was always one of his favorite actors, and, th- and they <laughs> met Powers on Booth. Tombstone, which was our Bill Paxton tribute uh, episode that we did just a couple of weeks ago, and they became friends. And he, he was quoted on the commentary for Frailty as saying, when I read this script, I immediately thought of him as kind of this iconic FBI guy. <laughs> and and it's, it's really funny because I was thinking Powers Booth doesn't really play anything but bad guys. Right. And yet in this film, he's playing a good guy. We well, thought. We thought. <laughs> it's perfect. It's so right. perfect. Um, and then he also, he also met uh, Matthew McConaughey, uh, who plays adult Adam, um, slash Fenton on U five seven one when they were filming that and those two became friends. Um, it's 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 almost like you get the impression that anyone and everyone who was lucky enough to become or to meet Paxton be- was you know became his friend and that's <laughs> that's really neat. Um, that is cool. And I think that probably helped. You know when he was doing this thing for the first time as a director, these guys trusted him wholeheartedly mm-hmm. because they he was their friend. I think it I think it would be very similar if you know I was to be uh, or to have a role in something you were directing in a short film, right? right? I I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to question you. I'm going to trust you because you're my friend and because we have a relationship and that is different than if I'm just simply there acting uh, as a job for the money. Um, in fact, Paxson cast one of the other people he cast in this film, uh, was the third victim, um, was a young man, played by a guy named Brad Berry Hill, who was a guy who parked cars at the Beverly Hills hotel and Paxton had interacted with him and <sighs> Paxton used to park cars at a hotel. And so he asked this guy if he wanted to be in the movie. It's a non-speaking part because he was one of the demons uh, tied up and the guy said, yes, like that's, that's awesome. awesome. Right. <laughs> that's so cool. So that's cool. so cool. That's so cool. Well, I, yeah. Oh, you want to, I was going to I was going to ask yeah. you about unreliable narrators because we've we've used okay. that phrase a couple times and yeah. and we haven't talked at all about the craziness of the Adam Fenton switcheroo and how that all plays out. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is definitely an unreliable narrator because that is the person who is telling us this whole story and I think when you go back and watch it that second time that's something that you get to experience and, and, and view differently is because now, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I, I there's an, I, I'm going to, how can I do this? I don't want to spoil this just in case I know it's old. There is another very iconic nineties film. 
that has a similar situation where a character is in a police office (laughs) having a conversation (laughs) and not really everything that they seem to be that this reminds me of. Yes. Um, I know exactly which one you're talking about. And yes, it absolutely reminded me of that. Yeah. And so it's like that because when you watch it again, you're, you're seeing it totally differently. Mm -hmm. Now you're picking up on the fact that at the beginning when he walks in and he goes straight to pointing out the pictures of the detective's mom, like that, it was meaningless to me when I watched it in, you know, first time through. But in hindsight, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, like, of course, that's what he was doing. He was, he was he, picking, he picking he him was, off. He was, he yeah. was. <laughs> and I thought, what a great role for Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I saw him, he's one of my, I mean, he's a, he's a favorite actor of mine. He's up there with Hugh Jackman in terms of just being one of these guys that I think has a lot of range in terms of his ability to be really funny with his all right, all right, all right. And his, you know, his more dramatic roles like in Interstellar. But seeing him in this, seeing him, you know, he wasn't young necessarily, but he was, you know, in his, you know, somewhat early acting days. Um, And just seeing him very quietly uh, just speak his lines, I never thought until the twist at the end that he was in any way dangerous, you know, because he just comes, he comes, he comes off, he comes off, excuse me. He comes across as a guy who is approachable, you know, someone who is mourning, who is someone who has got something that he needs to get off his chest. And, you know, you, I guess you should come to expect that from, from movies these days that, you know, whatever they have twists, but I just I think that that speaks a lot about how as as an actor I just I really enjoyed his role in this because when he made the old switcheroo uh and said, you know, I'm Adam <laughs> and then all the crazy stuff happens with like the the security cam and and all this other stuff, it's it's just ooh the creep factor goes like to 11 at that point. You're like, Matthew McConaughey is a creepy dude. <laughs> oh, by far one of my favorite and scariest scenes in this film is the car ride with the way the rain is coming down on the car and the, the whole aesthetic of that as they're driving and, and he's talking to him, talking to the detective and like mm-hmm. it, I, that's when we start to question and we're starting to wonder at that point if something is, is not right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dark is, and stormy night, is what it is. It's a dark something and stormy is night, not right? going correctly. Um, did you did you know? I read. Uh, I was reading some of the trivia on IMDb about that scene. That whole scene, all the all the scenes in there, all the dialogue, the car never moved. They were actually on a soundstage, and they had stagehands just slightly rocking the uh, the the car back and forth with just ambient noise in the background. <laughs> so they were actually never in like a moving vehicle. I thought that was kind of crazy. Wow. That uh, is crazy and very just, interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. That's neat. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I love learning how films are made and, and seeing the tricks that are used and, and trying to then watch the movie and see if there's some way I can notice it. Um, and being amazed right, right, when right. I can't, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even after I knew that piece of trivia, I was like, ah, nope, it looks real because the, the lighting of the passing cars was completely, you know, I completely sold me. So mm-hmm. it, it still stayed creepy even yeah. after I knew that. <laughs> so since you brought up 
briefly the footage, I'm going to ask you the question that as we start to wind down here, we both need to find a way to answer. Um, and that's, that is this, what interpret the ending for me? What is your interpretation of the ending? Do you believe, do you believe, uh, Patrick? (laughs) Um, so were there demons, um, or were, was this just a crazy person murdering people? And, well, and support your case if you go if you if you can. <laughs> to make it I difficult. Need you to, I need you to cite references. Uh, give me <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, I had real issues with interpreting this ending. I, I could not put my finger on if this was all hallucinations because of the fact that we didn't get those like cutscenes of like these horrific crimes that were being committed by these quote-unquote demons until the very end. And I thought, even after that, there is still this possibility that it was all in a person's head. Because really, this whole thing was really being driven by faith. Like, we never saw these crimes being committed outside of the minds of, uh, of Adam and Dad, you know, when, you know, putting their hands on a person's head or whatever. So I did what any, you know, smart intelligent person would do and i consulted the internet and i was looking at some forums and there was a uh, a reply about the ending and so i'm going to cheat and quote and i'm going to stand behind this as my source and it's quote fenton became a demon the moment he turned against god not only that he grew up to become a vicious serial killer who kept his victims you know aka trophies in his basement which we find out from the backstory Also, in the world of frailty, demons do in fact exist, and Adam and Dad were the good guys. The writer pointed out that Fenton cries and moans when a demon is killed, but never sheds a tear and couldn't care less when the real human is killed, which I did not pick up until... (laughs) I didn't either. So this is, again, something else I'm going to go back and watch. The writer said that he was confused why so many people find the ending ambiguous when he made it quite clear that Fenton was a demon and God's hands were real. Bill Paxton was not a madman. He was a good father who refused to kill his son when God told him to. So with that piece of information, I'm going to err on the side of saying if the writer says that it's the truth, then I'm going to believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the but this but this uh, this commenter makes a really good point in saying that, uh, particularly like when Fenton cries and moans, he cries and moans when a demon is killed, but not when an actual human is. Uh, even when he kills his dad. And I think that those little things, like what you brought up earlier, how we never see a demon being slayed, but we always see a, you know, we see the humans, those little separate pieces tell me that it wasn't just in dad's mind and in Adam's mind, that these guys actually experienced something that was real for them. And that um, maybe as a worldview, that's kind of where it gets difficult is, does their worldview equate the worldview of the people around them? Is their worldview the truth? And I think that may be what you're asking, and that I can't answer <laughs> because for them it was true. And so as an audience member, I'm inclined to believe them. Yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, the film, the film doesn't make it easy. You know, they show us that the flashes of all of the the people that have been killed that are so supposedly demons are bad people. They've done bad things, and particular problem for me of course is the footage um of the the video camera and why it's fuzzing out 
uh, when Fenton is walking around or when he's in the, in the FBI office. Now I've tried to find ways to rationalize these things. Um, we know that Fenton was able to, well, I, I go back to how was, how was, I'm sorry, Adam, how was Adam able to know that the detective had killed his mother? Right. How in the world would he have ever known that if it wasn't just a name on a list? Well, he's a cop. He has access to incredible amounts of information. And I wonder if he would have also had a way to manipulate and be able to uh, involve himself in a way to manipulate and make make it so that the tapes were fuzzy or make it so the tapes did not uh, show the right way. Like, Mm -hmm. so that he could almost, you know, know, again, psychologically, these guys are, they have, they've come so far to believe this, that they're going to justify anything they they do to make that happen as being supernatural because they, they believe it. And so I wonder if, if that could be part of it. Now, his wife is complicit in this. It seems at the end, it's the, 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 the uh, brief interactions we get, it feels very much like she knows what she's doing and she's pregnant. And I wonder where it goes from there. Are we, you know, bringing up another baby God's hand killer, um, intentionally. So the film makes it (laughs) really hard to not believe that they're actually killing demons. And I, I love that choice personally. I do. I think if the film ended with a nice tidy bow, and it was very obvious to a viewer that this was a crazy religious zealot. It wouldn't be that interesting of a film, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the thing is, Patrick, this happens in real life mm. far too often. Um, I mean, they, they, we have examples of this, a woman named Adria, Andrea Yates, I believe it was in Texas a few years back, mm-hmm. you know, drowned her kids and said that God told her to, Yeah, um, it's, it's awful. It's awful that this, these things happen. And gosh, like you said, you know, once your worldview has shifted and it's become your reality, like what, how do you, what do you do with that? Mm. You can never rationalize with that person. Um, and so I personally like to view this film as it being somewhat real as well. Uh, I I think whether I would say it is or isn't is less important than that's how I like to watch the movie. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I get enjoyment um, from the experience thinking that maybe there is some truth to this. Right. Um, but where I flip it from a religious perspective and from a Christian faith's perspective is I believe that it's not God that is giving them lists, that it's actually more of a demonic influence. Yeah that is giving them a false truth to believe in. So I believe they are being influenced, but I don't believe it's God. Right. And so the visions that we see that they see are false visions. They are. um, And again, going back to that self-fulfilling prophecy, Adam is a cop and he knows, you know, if we take the route that he knows the, He's done investigating. He knows the FBI agent has killed his mom. Like he, he's got evidence. He's, he's somehow he's picked up on that, that that self-fulfilling prophecy has allowed him to scrawl that guy's name on the list. (laughs) 
in order to justify killing him. Mm-hmm. And somehow, maybe that's not even one of the demonic visions. Maybe that's maybe that's the maybe his attitude and his approach to life uh, becomes, you know, the result of that is his ability to kill without remorse. <laughs> and so, again, if we believed, even if we believed that the other victims were as a result of these false visions that were being given by evil. I don't think for me, I don't think that the FBI agent was one of those guys. I think he was a, he was a manifestation of the history that Adam and his dad had with those, um, you know, those evil visions that they were given, you know, does that make sense? Uh, It does. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not, that's, that's really diving too deep into it, but I think that, there's a way in which if we look at that from a, a non good, like good versus bad, if we see this as an evil kind of touch or an evil hand on these guys, what we, what we kind of derive is that these guys were not evil, that those visions that they had were not, they were manifestations that didn't really happen with these people. Um, Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely go to the, they're not necessarily evil, but they are, they are twisted. And, and since mm-hmm. this is a movie with biblical themes, I mean, it, to me, you, you can't discount the idea of, you know, in the Bible, we are presented with a Satan, uh, and demonic characters who that is their entire, ex- that's what they exist to do is to pervert and twist and, and lie. And, and that is what they've done is right. what better way, by the way, to have them kill bad people who then they can quote unquote, be used to justify that they are killing in the name of God, which is what, which is exactly what a demonic presence would want to do because it's, mm. it's trying to, um, not discount. Oh gosh, what's the word? Um, it's trying to take away the legitimacy of the real God who would never ever call us to do that. Right. Right. Because we are mm-hmm. not called to do that as Christians. We're, we're called to battle with evil on a spiritual level, not on a physical one. So, right. um, yeah, I just, I, I get an enjoyment of reading the film that way, but man, it's just fantastic. No matter how you slice it. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had to, you just can't hack it. I love it. I love it. Oh man. Well, that's pretty heavy stuff. Do we want uh, to cover anything else? Do you think is there, did we miss anything or do you want to move on to the, the connecting point? Just real quick. I love the opening credits. I thought they were really creepy and the sepia tone stuff of showing kind of a history of the, of the God's hand murders. I thought that was really great. Just a great way to set up the movie. Oh, that was kind of cool from a design perspective. I as well. And another plug for another podcast that recently did frailty. One of my own personal favorite shows uh, is called The Fear of God, and they did an episode on frailty for their Bill Paxson tribute, and my buddy Reed, who's one of the co-hosts on that show, was talking about how he's recently been watching films in black and white, and what he'll do is he'll just basically change the contrast or whatever the color on his TV to watch things in black and white. And he never recommends doing this for the first viewing. He always says, you know, if you're going to watch a movie, you need to watch it the way the director intended the first time. But then once you've done that and you want to play with it, try it in black and white. Certain movies really are awesome. And he said that frailty was fantastic. He said that it was pretty amazing because 
the film had so much of it that lived in the gray area of the scale. And he just thought that was a, a, a very neat, um, you know, link to the fact that narratively speaking, this movie lives in the gray area as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested, you know, check it out on, in black and white. I think maybe the next time I watch it, I may actually do that. Cool, man. Yeah, I might consider that on my uh, next. Well, I'll take my third viewing. So, are you gonna watch it get, with your wife? No, I don't think she would like that. I think that would. I think it's it's as 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 much of a kind of a sissy as I am when it comes to horror. Um, I think this would be a little bit too much for her in terms of just the the the, the heavy themes mixed with some of the even the suggested violence might be a little bit too much for her. So it'll probably be another solo venture for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's completely uh, a smart move. <laughs> you know, you don't want to. If we do, if we do that together, we'll follow it up with Chalet Girl. <laughs> it comes to plug again. There you go. Hey, I, Steve's gonna like it. <laughs> well, well, let's let's move into our connecting point. What do you think? I think that would be great. And I'm going to since we have the same connecting point. Just to go ahead and throw that out there, uh, listeners. We talked about this and you know we do share what our connecting point is going to be ahead of time so we can make sure that we um, are prepared for that and though there are probably lots of different options it's pretty astounding to me that patrick and i landed on the same one um of all the of all the shots or the moments in this film for us to to really target and so i would like you to start if you don't mind and i'll just chime in where i can yeah man so the 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 moment that really stood out to me, uh, I always relate any kind anytime there's a father son moment, I always think, how would I have responded before I had my my son? And of course, this one I hadn't seen before, so watching this for the first time connected me obviously in that father son moment. And it's the it's the moment that dad forces Fenton down in the cellar. You know, we see this hatred, we see this frustration, and we see. Um, dad pick him up and I mean I almost thought he was going to throw him down the stairs I love that he didn't I love that he placed I'm him down glad there glad that you love that he didn't well I'm, I'm but again, again I think that says a lot about how much dad cares mm-hmm. and so because of what we know about him and how much he cares for his kids we know how brutal this must have been for him and to to have to say in his head there's something more important than my children um, the scene makes me, as an audience member, just wonder, you know, what could impact a person so much that they are willing to put something they don't fully understand ahead of the things that they do understand and care about more than anything. And it's it's a hard scene to watch, especially as a dad, because he's having to make this choice and one that could potentially end the life of something, someone he loves more than anything. And, you know, it's it's the... You know, to, to be a little candid here, it's it's kind of what our faith asks us to do, what my faith asks me to do, to put something that I don't fully understand in front of my family, in front of the things that I know legitimately that I do care about. And to me, that's what encompasses real faith. Just It, it goes beyond just believing without seeing, but really more so hoping that there is something worth fighting for and representing beyond what we experience in this life. Now, I'm going to say this up front. This is a very twisted type of faith that he has. As someone, you know, thinking from a from from a faith based from my personal faith standpoint, uh, dad is twisted. I mean, anytime you're, you know, being asked to to murder because God told you to, 
is is something that's hard for I me, mean, even from a biblical perspective, you know, reading stuff from the Old Testament, it's still hard for me to kind of grasp that because though there have been times for that and I have to kind of understand that. But even more so thinking about how um, a, a man who adores his children, who makes sure that they're tucked in every night and make sure that they're taken care of, has to make that choice to say, I'm sorry, but you have to, you have to believe on your own. This has to be for you. And I cannot, I cannot have you close to me if you don't, uh, this is more important than you. Gosh, that's a hard thing to have to swallow because that is part of my faith to say what I believe in my relationship spiritually to my God is elevated above my love for my wife and for my, my, my son. At the same time, my faith also tells me that it's because of that relationship with my God and, you know, Jesus specifically that I can love my wife and my child that much deeper. Um, so that's kind of why I connected with that because really it, it, it helps me kind of examine my faith and why I believe what I believe. Uh, not necessarily that I would take an ax to somebody because <laughs> some some vision told me to, but more so that I I have to kind of approach my faith with that kind of mentality that um and and it's hard. I mean it, it's definitely something that I that I wrestle with putting putting something that I don't fully understand ahead of of the things that I do and that I love dearly. Well, that's yeah, that's powerful stuff and and it's impossible to separate, um, you know, who you are from the way that you view entertainment. I mean, that's, that's just a fact of life. And that, that goes for all of us. And I, you know, suspect that people of different faith backgrounds are going to react to this in a, in a much different way. Um, I know part of the reason this was so impactful for me, uh, was definitely because of what you started off by talking about the father son dynamic and just briefly imagining my own self and, and how could I ever, put my son in this position. Would I ever be able to do this? Um, one thing for me that was actually, I guess it sounds like it's almost a little bit different than you. Um, that was particularly tragic about this is I felt like at this point he almost had crossed the line that he had been walking previously into somewhat manipulation. Um, previously he, when he's talking about, uh, what's going on, he, he's telling, Fenton, uh, this is our job now, son. We've got to do this. Um, he says, his, Fenton is like saying, I'm going to tell the police. And his dad says, if you do that, son, I'll die. The angel was clear on this. And it, that scene to me ties into this scene where now he is forcing Fenton down into the cellar. But, you know, as you bring up, you can, you can look at this as he, his perspective is, Fenton, you have to believe on your own. You have to come to this right. decision on your own. Right. But we can also look at it as you're starving someone to get a confession. Is that mm -hmm. a valid confession? Is it the truth if you're putting the pressure on him and saying on, a ch on an unbearable pressure on a 12-year-old or 10-year-old child to tell him, I'm going to die if you go to the police? What? Look at we, You're putting him in a, in a place he can't comprehend how to mm -hmm. respond to that. And so you're doing that again. This scene just kills me. I mean, watching Fenton cry and scream and it breaks my heart when, when his brother is, is, uh, brings him the water and the way that it's shot 
with you know pouring the water through the holes in the in the the cupboard or the cupboard in the the basement there in the cellar and you know he's like do you want more and he's like yeah more 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 i gosh i i just oh i i mean cuz because it i don't know why but i guess for some reason it just it becomes more tangible for me it, it's it's no longer at that point a dad who's really being a good father and just caught up in something mm-hmm. um, he, when you, when you start to now punish your own children, um, innocent children, um, I, I really see the evil that has taken him over. And I was recently listening to uh, a true crime podcast and it was about a, a true, a real life story about a, a man who had gone crazy. Um, he had multiple personality disorder and his family just, wouldn't push the issue to get him on medication and to take care of himself. And and there were many, many times when it was very clear things were not going right and that he was dangerous. And he be out of quote unquote love. He poisoned his sister and tried to kill her and then eventually ended up murdering his entire family because he felt that that was the only way to quote unquote save them. I mean, that is the fact that this can happen in real life and that kids could be involved and, and innocent mm-hmm. people could lose their lives is where I tend to go. And, and all of this scene and everything we we're just talking about, but this scene in particular, just, I don't know, it, it, it all, it all hits me right then in that moment. Yeah. Um, and it's the hardest thing in this movie for me to watch. And so that's why I connect with it too. Yeah. It's, it is tough and it's powerful though. I, I guess it's, it's a, the most horrific scene in the film. It is. In a lot of ways. And it doesn't require any axe chopping whatsoever. Nope. nope. And it, which I think is really what makes it powerful is I think it, this scene really pinpoints what the movie's about. I mean, yes, it's about demon slaying or perceived demon slaying, but it's about a father son relationship in in some ways. And when you can do that and create the most powerful scene being done without the shock value, even as little shock value as there was in, in the murder scenes, uh, to me, that's that's good storytelling. I really, really think that that that's that's why this scene is so powerful. Is that it does a lot with a little, you know? Yeah, I do. So, man, this has been good. This has been a lot of fun. I I'm so glad we got to talk about this movie and that you were willing to throw it in the schedule on a whim like we did. Uh, it's this is the perfect time, you know, as we really just kind of say goodbye in a lot of ways and celebrating, you know, Bill Paxton's career and, um, the wonderful artist that, that he was, uh, and all of the things that he provided to the world. It's, it's too bad that he's, he's gone, but, um, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust and all that good stuff. That's how it works. Yeah. That's for sure. We'll miss you. We'll miss you, Bill. Yeah. Like we're on a first name basis now. Well, you know, you know we're, we're, we're buddies. <laughs> We're buddies. He was coming on the podcast next month. It's just too, it's just a darn shame. So the extreme, pa- the extreme. So now that we have completely transitioned, Patrick, where can people find you on the web <laughs> if they would like to come yell at you for making bad jokes or or talk to you more about frailty and, and their take and what they heard you say about the movie? You can find me at insincere person. At, no. <laughs> you can... <laughs> I'm at the big three. I'm at uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. You can find me and uh, shoot me your thoughts on frailty or anything else that we've talked about 
on this episode or past episodes. I love to keep the conversation going about movies, books, comics, you know, whatever is in the world of good storytelling. You can also find out more about me at my website, thisispatch.com. I wanted to give you guys a heads up that next week we are heading back to the theater. We are going to venture out and take on the next installment of the uh, the Furious franchise, The Fate of the Furious. I am definitely jazzed about this one. If for no other reason than I can quote Vin Diesel saying, you can have any beer in this place as long as it's a Corona. You know, I, I just, <laughs> you know, I'm, I just, <laughs> any excuse I have to quote uh, Dom saying something really just dumb at some point <laughs> is enough to uh to make me happy so i'm really uh, i know we're both excited about seeing this latest installment all the the cars and the excitement and really just this explosive cast of people that have uh have joined up with this latest this latest venture in the furious franchise well i am right there with you i love this franchise i mean it is a huge huge love for me all the movies. Um, I'll talk much more about that next week, I'm sure. But it is going to be a gush fest, probably, from me. Um, I don't come listen to next week's episode if you're looking for a ton of objectivity. Uh, because you're probably not going to find it. <laughs> because, you know, sometimes you just got to go with the flow and enjoy the heck out of a film. And I expect that to be what is going to happen. So we'll see. We'll see what, what takes place. But from what I've seen thus far, I, I have high hopes and, Oh man, I can't wait to see it. Um, in addition to that, Patrick, we're going to follow that up with uh, a bonus episode, a new bonus episode for our patron supporters, our Patreon supporters on Patreon. Uh, that's a website. <laughs> too, too many wow. arms. <laughs> yeah. Patreon is a website where uh, content creators like ourselves can offer bonus content and rewards uh, for you to pledge your support via financial donations. And, you know, we have a page at patreon.com slash film. You can go there and check out the rewards. Uh, you can get access to all of the bonus content there and all future bonus content coming for as little as two bucks a month. Uh, for as little as three bucks a month, you can actually get votes that will help us pick our monthly donor pick episode. So the uh, votes are happening right now. Actually, I think we've got maybe about a week left that will accept votes. So if you were to subscribe right now, we could get you in on that voting list. Uh, otherwise, the next episode coming after that Fate and the Furious, we're going to do a top five action heroes episode, which I'm really pumped for. Uh, that I, I, I've already been trying to go down the list, and I think I've narrowed it to 20. So, um, <laughs> got a little work ahead of me still. And, and I think 15 of them are in the fate of the furious, by the way, 15 of those 20, the fate of the furious or expendable seven. There you go. <laughs> um, if you'd like to contact me on social media, you can do so all over the web at Aaron L white, A A R O N E L W H I T E. I am also very active uh, on the show's Twitter and Facebook feeds. And we have a Facebook group, which is where a lot of the magic happens. People are talking about movies and TV shows and other entertainment all day long, every day. And you're welcome to come join that as well. Just do a little Facebook search for Feel and Film Facebook group, something like that. And uh, you can also find a link to that on the website if you want to get there easier. Patrick, I think that's about it for this one. And I guess we'll just uh, say goodbye. And until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film.